reading this morning begins in Judges, the second chapter, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandment of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whatever the Lord, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved in pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. This is the reading of God's word. This past week, I came across an article that got my attention right away. It said, uh, family accidentally poisons itself for weeks. I see an article like that, I'm like, well, I, all right, we got to find out what's going on with this. So I opened up the article, and the story was about a mom who had discovered that every Monday for a number of weeks, she, her husband, and her son would get sick. It would manifest itself with a fever, headaches, or, or throwing up. Now, the first week, they didn't think too much of it, maybe just something they ate or maybe a little flu. Second week, thought a little bit more seriously about it, kind of thought, man, what's going on here? The third Monday it happened, they finally said, we got to figure this out. Okay, what did everybody, what did everybody eat on Monday? And they kind of looked through and, uh, their meals, and they had eaten the same things, which made sense, but they looked at the food, none of it had been spoiled. They decided to deep clean the house, um, and nothing seemed to work because the next Monday they all got sick Again, the mom that week went into the doctor for uh, a different issue. And when she went to the doctor, she explained the problem that she was having. And the doctor said, oh, have you checked your peanut butter? And she said, yeah, of course we checked our peanut butter. Like, there's nothing wrong with it. It, it wasn't spoiled. And he said, no, no, this XYZ brand of peanut butter, um, it has a recall because of salmonella. And it could be the case. And sure enough, she went home and discovered that they had been having peanut butter sandwiches every Monday. That was kind of their tradition for work or going to school. And that that peanut butter was, in fact, from the company that had the recall. So they stopped eating the peanut butter. The next week, though, on Monday, the son and the dad got sick again. And they're just like, what is going on? We got rid of the peanut butter. Can't explain it. They got better, like, by the next day. Six weeks. Again, Monday comes around, and they get sick. And they're just befuddled. They're at wit's end. And then they stop, and they think, okay, we stopped eating the peanut butter, but what else could it be? And so they looked at the pattern. What had the son eaten? What had the father eaten on those days? And they're like, 
well, we ate this and we ate this. And there seemed to be no real consistency until the dad said, wait a second. Every Monday, the dad and the son, along with previously eating those peanut butter sandwiches made with the peanut butter that had the salmonella potentially, also ate these generic peanut butter cups. They weren't Reese's peanut butter cups. They were just a generic brand. And when they investigated who makes those peanut butter cups and what peanut butter they use, guess what? It was that same brand of peanut butter that was due to the recall. And because they took a step back and they looked at the pattern, they were able to decide we shouldn't be eating those peanut butter cups. Guess what happened the next Monday? They didn't eat the peanut butter cups and nobody got sick. And so they were able to, to locate the source and the cause ultimately of their sickness and, and save themselves from pain and suffering. And, and who knows where it could have potentially ultimately led. The mom actually shared that story. And because she did, other individuals discovered that they too were having the same things and they didn't realize that that peanut butter was, was the cause of it. Looking at cycles, looking at patterns, investigating them in this situation, it helped them discover that there was something wrong, something that needed to be fixed. When we come to the book of Judges Church, we are going to see today in our text a cycle, a pattern that begins in the life of the people of Israel. And that cycle and that pattern will repeat itself over and over again in this book. And my hope and my prayer is that as we discover this cycle, as we look at it, we will be able to evaluate our own lives and we'll be able to learn, as God's word would call us to, from the experience of the Israelites. And like this family did when they paused and examined the cycle and the pattern in their life, were helped and even saved that the same might be true of us. The scripture reading that we heard this morning came not from Judges chapter 3, where we'll be today, but came from Judges chapter 2. And the reason why I wanted to have that passage read is because it really sets the stage for our text this morning. If you were with us last week, you know that the, the book of Judges takes place in the time of Israel's history when God has redeemed and rescued them out of the land of Egypt. He's taken them from slavery, and he's brought them to the promised land, to the land of Canaan, and he told the people, I will be your God. Serve me as your king. Look to me and me alone, and I will give you this land. But you must obey me. You must walk in obedience to my commands. You must drive out the nations around you. You can't leave anybody in the land. And as we saw last week, Israel, when given this instruction by God, the first thing that they did was... They disobeyed. They disobeyed. They, they failed to drive the people out of the land. And how did God respond to it? He said, listen, if you won't obey me, then I'm going to leave the people in the land. That's what, that's what chapter 2, the verses we heard read, talked about. I'm going to leave the people in the land to test you and to correct you and to bring you back to me because you have disobeyed my ways. But God, being a God of, of both judgment and also grace, he said in our text this morning that he would also provide for the people Judges, delivers that if God's people called out to him, if they repented of their ways, he would raise up judges, rulers, who would save them and rescue them. And so when we come to chapter 3 this morning, we are going to read about the first of these cycles, the first experiences where Israel rebels and God brings about an oppressor, and then God saves. And we're going to look at the first two 
Judges. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Judges chapter 3. We're picking it up in verse 7. It begins with these words. God has told them what he's going to do. He told them to keep obeying him, to, to serve him as their king. And it says in verse 7, well, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Right out of the gate, after God has said what he would do if they walk in his ways, the people of God rebel. Get used to this. This is going to happen over and over again. And how does God ultimately respond to their rebellion? We'll look at verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishthaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishthaim eight years. Church, what did God say he would do if the people disobeyed? What God said he would do was that he would bring about an oppressor. He would place them under the rule and the reign of a foreign king. And he would do that for what purpose? To ultimately correct him. He's, God's not being harsh here. He's not, he's not being mean. When it says that his anger was, was burning against the people, that was a righteous anger. God is perfect and holy and loving in all of his ways. But when you rebel against him, you're rebelling against the good and the right. And, and because he is God and because his ways are perfect, when you go against him, he is in the right to be angry over sin, to see his beautiful creation and his ways destroyed. And so he sends about this king to enslave his people. They serve a foreign king rather than God because they had turned to false gods. And he says, all right, if you're going to turn to false gods, well, I'm going to turn you over to a false king. And the, this king, his name is interesting because... When we think about Israel, we think, like, how bad was the oppression that they experienced? Like, was it as bad as you think it was? His name, Kushan Rishthaim. It literally means Kushan of double wickedness. This was a bad dude. This was a guy who wasn't just evil. He was tremendously evil. He was tremendously wicked. The idea, as we read this story, is to realize that the very first king that oppresses the Israelites is not someone that you'd want to deal with. And then the text goes on to say, church, how long did they serve this king? Eight years. Eight years. But then look at what the text says next. But when the people of Israel, verse 9, cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. This verse has so much packed into it. The first thing I want you to notice is this. Verse 9 starts with, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer. The way that the Hebrew is written, the way that the text comes across, is that it was not until they got into the eighth year that Israel finally cried out to the Lord. Are you, are you tracking with me? It wasn't as though during the eight years they were crying out to God. You and I are supposed to read the text with this idea that it was at the eight-year mark that something clicked, that something drew the people of Israel 
to seek out the Lord and to cry out to him. Now, church, God had already told them that when they were oppressed, all they had to do was to cry out and he would send a deliverer. So what? You're supposed to read this and think, what would cause Israel to forget, to fail, to call out to God for eight years? I don't know what the exact answer is, but I can think of a lot of different things that causes us to know what God would call us to do but fail to do it. Sometimes it's just a spiritual blindness. Sometimes we are so enveloped in our sin that we don't turn to the God who would look to save. Sometimes we feel so much shame and guilt that we think we, we deserve this. We could never call out to God, I am getting what I deserve. For whatever reason, Israel doesn't do it. They could have done it much sooner, but they didn't. And so for eight years, they served the king of double wickedness. But then he sends forth a Messiah. That's literally what it says in the Hebrew. A a deliverer for his people. Someone who rescues them because they have called out. And the guy that he sends is Othniel, the son of Kenaz. Now this guy, if you have been reading the book of Judges and you're one of those, you know, type A studious students, you'll already know that he was mentioned in chapter 1. He comes from the tribe of Judah, the first family, if you will, of all the tribes. So here you have Othniel coming from a, from a solid family, but not just a solid family, but what some would say a godly family. His uncle is Caleb. Caleb, who along with Joshua were the only two spies who before this thing all began, when they went into the promised land with the others, said, hey, we can take the promised land. They were the only two spies who said, we can do this. God has given them into our hands. And, and it, so it's, it's no small thing that Caleb is mentioned as his uncle. We're getting a picture painted of this first judge that he's the kind of leader that you would expect from the first family, a godly family. And then on top of that, we know from earlier in chapter 1, that he had been one of the individuals who early on had won a a great victory in the initial conquering of the land. So Othniel is called by God. And I think when God called him to do this, the people looked at a guy like Othniel and said, yeah, we can get behind him. And look at what God does. Verse 10, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. Remember, whenever we hear that he judged Israel, don't think Supreme Court, don't, don't think standing there over trials. It, it means that he, he ruled or he gave oversight to Israel. <clears throat> he went out to war, and the Lord gave Kushan Rishthaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Kushan Rishthaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then... Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Just as God promised, Israel sinned. They faced oppression. They cried out to God. God did what he said he would do. He sends forth a deliverer, and the deliverer delivers. And for 40 years, they have peace. They have rest. This is exactly what chapter 2 told us we would see in the book. But then, look at the end of verse 11. Chapter 2 told us that whenever you see this statement, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Whenever you hear of a judge dying, you should anticipate that's not a good thing for Israel. 
And sure enough, verse 12 tells us that with the death of Othniel, Israel reverts. It starts in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Have we heard that before? They're doing exactly what verse 7 said they did. The, the ruler dies and they turn back to their ways. The death of Othniel kicks off a period of rebellion for the people of God. And church, what did God say he would do when they turned from him? What did he say? I'm going to punish you. I'm going to bring oppressors to oppress you. And sure enough, that's what happens. And the Lord strengthened. Now instead of deliverer to save Israel, he strengthens Eglon, the king of Moab. And what does he strengthen them to do? He strengthens them against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. First, Kushan, now Eglon, comes and oppresses the people of God, not because they were innocent, but because they were guilty. They were living in rebellion against God. And God says, I am to be your king. You're to follow me. My covenant with you is what you are to embrace and not go after foreign gods. And yet that's exactly what they did. Now, they rebelled. God oppressed them. What's going to happen next if the cycle is consistent? They're going to call out to God. And they're going to ask for a deliverer. Look at verse 15. Shocker. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Not Othniel, he's dead. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Just as before, Israel gets his act together, and they cry out to God because of their oppression. And God, he hears their prayer, and God sends to them a deliverer, this guy Ehud. Ehud, who it appears had the job and the responsibility of bringing the tribute to the king, Eglon. Now, do you guys know what a tribute is? A tribute was basically like a tax, if you will. If you were under in submitting to a foreign king, you would bring uh, produce, monetary resources, and you would give it to the king in humility as showing that you're subservient to him. It was kind of like a shakedown, if you will. And so Eglon, or uh, Ehud, was the man given the responsibility to do this. But here's what I want to show you. Ehud and Othniel couldn't be more different. God couldn't have picked more different individuals as the first two judges to deliver his people. Let me show you what I mean. First off, Ehud doesn't come from the family of Judah. He comes from the family of Benjamin. Now Benjamin was the youngest brother of the, of the 12 brothers. And so he was, for all intents and purposes, kind of, you know, the, the, the least of, of the tribes. And so unlike Othniel, who came from, from Judah, Ehud comes from Benjamin. And at this time in history, Benjamin, well, they were the first tribe after Judah, the text tells us, to fail to obey the Lord. So, so he doesn't have, come from a family of, of great standing, as one who would lead the people of God. And then we read in the text what I think is the most important fact about Ehud. It says that he was left-handed. 
Did you guys all notice that? What a funny fact to, to say about a guy. Like, what does it matter that he's left-handed versus right-handed? Well, it's going to come into play later in the story, but there's more to it than first meets the eye. If you're a left-handed person living in a right-handed world, you're in the minority. And it can be somewhat of a struggle to be a left-handed person in a right-handed world. But Ehud's problem with being left-handed extends far beyond the fact that he was just a left-handed person in a right-handed world. You see, when the text says that he was light, right or left-handed, in the Hebrew, it literally says this, and I put this in your notes so you could fill it in. Left-handed literally means restricted as to the use of his right hand. When it calls Ehud left-handed, it's not just telling us that he preferred his left hand. It's telling us that he was restricted as to the use of his right hand. He couldn't use his right hand. Something physically about Ehud prevented him from using his right hand. And potentially, I would even argue, the right side of his body or aspects of the right side of his body. Later in the Judges, I got to acknowledge this, it's going to be referred to that there were 600 men from the tribe of Benjamin who were left-handed and they were mighty warriors. Now, what I would argue is that they were left-handed, not in the sense of Ehud, but they were left-handed as a way of showing their solidarity with Ehud, who was considered, after the story, a mighty warrior for the people of God. I don't think Ehud had that privilege. I think Ehud was somebody who was left-handed, not by choice, but by birth. You see, Ehud's name, it literally means, where's the majesty? Where's the glory? Who amongst you would name your child, where's the majesty, where's the glory? The Cozies just had their first little girl, named her Lucy. I love, love that name. I doubt when they looked at Lucy, they, they said, you know what? Let's give her a name that for the rest of her life will remind her that she amounts to nothing. That's what Ehud's name literally meant. What's the big deal? I mean, that's basically what his name meant. Who does that? Well, I think who does that are people that look at a child who is born with a deformity on their right side. Because do you know what the name Benjamin means? The tribe that Ehud comes from? The name Benjamin means the son of my right hand. So here's this boy born into the family that's called the son of my right hand, and they look at him and something's wrong. He's a child who will never be able to use his right hand. It would make sense that when you look at a child who's born to a family who's exalted as the son of the right hand, and that child won't use that right hand, that you would look at him and say, what's the big deal with him? That's not the son of my right hand. That's a son who can only use his left hand. And as the story plays out, I think we're going to see how this all factors in all the more. And how because of his weakness, it was exactly what God wanted and would use to accomplish his purpose. But for right now, recognize that Othniel, the one who came before him, this leader of leaders who, who came from a good family and a godly family and who, who had already done courageous things, like he was the prototype. And then he come to Ehud and nothing in him would have made you think, now here's a guy, here's a guy who can deliver. But verse 16, Look at what it says. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, 
a cubit in length, which was about 14 to 18 inches, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. I just love that little phrase there. The, the, the king that he's given the tribute to, he's a fat man. He's literally grown fat on the success and the servitude of the people of God. And so Ehud does his job. He goes to give him tribute. He knows that he's going to do that. And it says in the text here that his intention, it appears in verse 16, is to prepare himself to assassinate the king. He makes himself a sword. And when they comes to Eglon, he pays his tribute. And verse 18 says, And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. This is one more indication to me that I think that he had some kind of deformity because he's not the one who carries the tribute. Other people have to carry it for him and present it to the king. Now, maybe it was too, too heavy for any one person, but nonetheless, Ehud's doing the job that he typically did, and he potentially had a relationship with the king already because he felt comfortable enough to send the rest of the people away, the rest of the Israelites who came with him. And verse 19 says, But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He sends the people away. We, we don't know why. Maybe they didn't know of the plan. Maybe he was trying to protect them. And Eglon commanded, Silence! And all of his attendants went out of his presence. So Ehud goes to the king and he says, I got something, but it's just for your ears only. And then Eglon does something remarkable, whether it's today or 3,000 years ago. He literally tells his attendants to leave him alone with Ehud. Remember, Ehud is part of the nation that's being oppressed by Eglon. It's a rare thing for a king, a president, or anybody to be in the presence of a foreign enemy by themselves. Yet why does Eglon feel comfortable enough to be with Ehud? Maybe there was familiarity, but I think it was also because he saw an Ehud because of his physical appearance, because of his potential deformity, that he had nothing to worry about. And so he stays in the room there with Ehud. And look what happens. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. So Eglon gets off his throne like a giddy schoolboy getting ready to hear a juicy secret about a classmate. He leans in. What is it? What do you have to tell me? What do the gods have to say? And in that moment, verse 21, this is graphic. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into Eglon's belly, and the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Were you anticipating that on Sunday mornings? 
There are some parts of the Bible that are not G-rated, folks. This fat, oppressive king in one fell swoop is assassinated by Ehud. He drives his sword 14 to 18 inches in length so far into Ehud that the hilt of the sword goes in. And the fat of, e of Eglon closes in over it. And that very last phrase when it says the dung came out, we don't know exactly what that means, but, but I think a better translation of it is that it literally had the sword go all the way through and popped out the other end of his body. A gross, gross picture, but a just end to an enemy of God. And with the deed done, what does, what does Ehud do? Well, then Ehud went into the porch, and he closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and he locked them. Good call, Ehud. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the door of the roof chambers were locked, look at what they thought. Surely he is relieving himself in the closet in the cool of the chamber. Their immediate thought is, oh, the doors are closed, Ehud is gone, but that's because he's going to the bathroom and he doesn't want to be interrupted. And so look at the details here, right? What this does, because they assume the king locked the door because he's going to the bathroom, is it gives Ehud time to escape. Verse 25, this is hysterical. And they waited till they were embarrassed, right? All right, so he's going to the bathroom. That's what they think. Now, how long would you wait? How long do you think they waited before they thought maybe something else is going on here? It says they waited till they were embarrassed, till it got uncomfortable. I have to think, I, don't, I mean, probably more than 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, you know, that it's like, how long does it take you guys to go to the bathroom, you know? Uh, maybe an hour, two hours. It, it's amazing to have this detail, but it's in there because it tells us that ultimately Ehud was able to get far away from the palace because of how long they waited. But when he had still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Meanwhile, Ehud escaped while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. The Moabites, they're in chaos. They're in confusion. Their king is dead. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over them. And verse 29 says, And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Through a leader that no one expected, God fulfilled his promise. This is the second time and not the last that this cycle unfolds for us. It's important for us, church, 
before we look at what we take away from these two stories, to acknowledge the cycle that we see in the book. These stories are not just stories or fables. They're not just supposed to be fascinating or, or gruesome. It's not just the story of underdogs winning the day, good triumphing over evil. No, there's first and foremost a pattern here that we as the people of God are able to see in the pattern of the, of the judges. The cycle in judges looks like this. Israel sins. God punishes. Israel cries out and God delivers. This is the cycle that repeats time and time again. We saw it twice already. And so what do we learn from this cycle? Is there a lesson here for us? The contrast between these two judges is important because it leads us to the first point. God delivers. The thing that you and I need to take hold of as we read the book of Judges is this one very simple truth. The hero of every one of these stories, who all of these stories are ultimately about, is not Israel, and it's not the judges. The story, the hero of those stories, is God and God alone. And it's that God and God alone is the deliverer of his people. Not Othniel, not Ehud. They're just tools. They're instruments that God used. But when you read the book of Judges over and over again, it wants you to see that deliverance, salvation, it comes not through your works and not through my works. It comes by the hand of God. Verse 9 says, Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up a deliverer. Verse 10 says the spirit of the Lord was upon the judge Othniel. Verse 15, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. The main character of the book of Judges is God and his faithfulness to do what he said, that when his people cry out to him in their sin and in their guilt and in their desperation, he hears the cries of his people and he brings forth a deliverer. Church, that's not just a story of judges. It is the message of the entire book of the Bible. You and I, we can't deliver ourselves from our enemies. Whether they be Canaanites, whether they be Philistines, whether they be Romans, whether it be any of our enemies today, and we sure can't deliver ourselves from our greatest enemy Sin. And if you want to understand your God, if you want to understand the message of the Bible, the good news has been, is, and forever will be that God is the deliverer of his people. It's not through your good works. It's not through your going to church. It's not through praying prayers or reading your Bible. It is when you recognize the desperation of your situation, when you see that your sin has put upon you a guilt that you can never pay, a penalty that you can never ransom yourself from, you look at judges and then you look at Jesus Christ and you see that deliverance will only come by the hand of God. The Apostle Paul 
put it nicely, neatly, succinctly when he said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. We see it played out first in the life of the Israelites, and then we see it in full display in Jesus Christ. Look, Kushan Rishtayim, the king of double wickedness, oppressed the people of God, yet God conquered him. Eglon, the king who was fat and powerful, oppressed the people of God, yet God conquered him. You and I live in the domain of darkness, in the dominion of sin, and yet God, in and through Jesus Christ, delivers us when we turn and call out to him. This is the message of the Christian's hope. It's on display in Judges, but it's on display throughout the rest of the Bible. So is there anyone here today who believes that by good works, you can be saved? Through therapy, you can deal with your guilt and shame. I'm telling you, at the end of the day, forgiveness, redemption, healing, it's only found in what Jesus Christ offers to you. He is the one who pays the penalty. He is the one who relieves the shame. He is the one who pays and addresses our guilt once and for all. Do you know this deliverer? Or are you still trying to do it on your own? When you embrace that truth, this second truth becomes all the more beautiful. And it's very simply this. Your weakness, therefore, I'm not talking about your sin, but your weaknesses, whatever they are, they're not a hindrance to God. If by God's power and might alone he delivers, then using Othniel and using Ehud are examples to us. It doesn't matter how strong you are or the weaknesses, the deformities, the lack of gifts you have. God can use whoever he deems to accomplish his plans and his purposes. Too many times people look at their past and they understand that they're forgiven and the grace of God has, has covered them and their, and their new creations in Jesus Christ, but they still look at themselves and they say, I'm not as smart as that person. I don't have the wealth of that person. I don't have the gifts of that person. I truly can't be used by God. Look at the story of Ehud. Look at what he did, not because of who he was or because of his family or because of his strengths, but because God says, even those who are weak, even those who are deformed, I can use you for my glory. Ehud just sought to follow the Lord, to walk in obedience to him, and God used him. Again, the Apostle Paul would, would pick this up when he wrote to the Corinthian church. I love what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, uh, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. How would you like if somebody was writing you a letter and they started with that? Like, think about what you were. Not many of you were wise by human standards. He's like, wait, are you calling me dumb? I mean, yeah, basically that's what Paul is saying. He's like, from the world's perspective, you weren't that smart. So not many of you were influential and not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. What's Paul saying? He's saying, it's not about your pedigree. It's not about your physical or mental abilities. If you are in Jesus Christ,
because the power of God is what delivers us. It's through him and him alone that you can do the things that would be for his glory. It's why later when he wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 12, he says, listen, we're the body of Christ and individually members of it. And, and the eye can't say to the ear, I have no need of you. And the hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. We all are used by God in the way that he designs because to him belong the power. To him belong the glory. My grace, he says, is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect. Do you know how that verse ends? My power is made perfect in weakness. Praise God that one of the things that this story shows us so clearly and abundantly is that God is the one who is able to deliver and he is able to use those who make themselves available to him and the weaknesses that you have, your perceived weaknesses or inabilities, God says, I'm not constrained by those things. I use a left-handed man to save and deliver my people. Church, the, the cycle in Judges will repeat over and over again. Over the coming weeks, we're going to hear about different judges, and we're going we're gonna to learn from them. But I want to leave you with one thing that I think is so important that will show itself again and again, and, it, and that's the very first thing in the cycle, and that is the people of Israel sinned. Why is it that over and over and over again, God delivers, gives them rest, and yet they turn back? Or I should say they turn away from God. And it's because of this one thing. Spiritual amnesia is real. Spiritual amnesia is real. You can know God and what he has done for you, but slowly, over time, you can begin to fade away in your knowledge of those things. And slowly but surely, the people of God turned from him, gave themselves over to other gods. And we see this spiritual amnesia taking hold. It is real. And how do you combat it? What keeps us from falling into spiritual amnesia? Did you know in the Bible that over 500 times the word remember or one of its variants is mentioned. The only way to combat spiritual amnesia, to not fall into this pattern, is to continually bring to our minds who our God is and what he's done. Israel failed in that. Not long ago, I was here at the church, and a man came by, someone who I hadn't seen in seven years. And I had a conversation with him, and, and he had been a part of the church for an extended period of time, served the church, went to men's Bible studies, went to retreats, was here on Sunday mornings. And I saw this man, and, and we began to talk, but he hadn't been to this church or any church for over seven years. I thought, well, how did he get to that place? How did, he, how did he get there? But I knew the story, spiritual amnesia. It all began because there was a time in his life when he was going to church, but there were certain activities in his kid's life that pulled him away for a couple Sundays in a row. Those couple Sundays led to a few more Sundays. And then eventually, didn't see him for a few months because it was hard to get back into the flow, he said at the time, 
eventually saw him and his family at Easter, and then I saw him at Christmas Eve, but no other time in between. Eventually, I never saw him at Christmas, or I never saw him at Easter at all. He just simply stopped going. It started in a very simple way. He just simply turned and gave his attentions and his affections not to the things of the Lord, but to the things of this world. It's hard for me to say, but it's the Baals and the Asheroths. It's the foreign gods. When we're not dwelling upon the Lord, we're dwelling upon something else. And whatever we're dwelling upon that's not the Lord, it will pull us away. May the Lord help us to not fall into this cycle because we understand the importance, the significance of dwelling upon who God is and what he's done. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you, Thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word time and again as the great deliverer. That our salvation, it doesn't rest upon our works. All that we bring to our relationship with you is our sin. And yet when we cry out to you in our despair and in our hopelessness, acknowledging that our condition was of our own making, it's then and there that we find the forgiveness and the grace that is offered through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, may we always look to him. May spiritual amnesia never be part of our lives because, Lord, we continue to look to the Savior of our souls, embracing what he has done and sharing that with generations to come. For the praise and glory of your name, we ask through Christ our Savior. And all God's people said, amen, amen.